Good morning, church. Hey, it's good to be here uh, with you guys this morning. If I have not met you yet, uh, as Sabrina said, there's lots of, lots of new faces, lots of visitors. We're so glad to have you guys. I uh, so hope you feel warmly welcomed. If I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as one of the elders and as family pastor. Uh, if you've been around for uh, a few months, you know that our lead pastor, Justin, he's on sabbatical right now. So we're praying and excited for his family as they, um, as they experience a season of, of rest and refocus and renewal. Uh, we're also going through the book of Zephaniah, and that's where we're going to be in this morning. We're in Zephaniah chapter 3. We're, uh, we're going to spend four weeks in Zephaniah, and this is our third of four weeks in the book of Zephaniah. And we're looking at this theme of our committed king. We're examining and exploring, discovering what it is that our king, our God, is committed to on behalf of of his people, okay? Zephaniah, the prophets, really the entire storyline of the Old Testament is, is, a, is a big, long story at what is God committed to? What, is, what are his priorities over the long haul? And that's, those, are the, those are the questions that we're uh, asking. So uh, uh, before we jump into Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going we're gonna, to, so if you have a copy of scripture, turn there with me. Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going to look at just verses 6 through 13. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Uh, um, uh, turn there with me so you can have it in front of you. The words will not be on the screen uh, behind me uh, for that passage. But I, as you're turning there, let me pray for us uh, for our time in God's Word. Father, you are good and you're gracious to us. Uh, uh, you're rich in love, you're slow to anger. Uh, this morning we're going to read a passage uh, that, that describes your slowness to anger, but eventually we know, Lord, that, uh, that in your righteous justice, uh, your anger does, does manifest itself. So as we re- read of your, of your anger and your righteous wrath, Lord, in this, in this, uh, over the next few verses, Lord, would we also see that behind and, 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 and pushing uh, your wrath greater than your wrath is your love and that uh, your wrath is always restorative, that you are, are using pain, you're using challenges, you're using difficult things for your good and beautiful purposes. So would you teach us whatever you have us to see in your word by the power of your spirit, even as we come to an obscure, random uh, passage uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, teach us. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to accompany me, a broken, weak person, trying to uh, explain, explain Scripture. Uh, so would, you, would, you, would your spirit show up powerfully uh, for us this morning? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this, this summer... Um, this summer, we are, um, my family and I, uh, Monica and I, are remodeling our kitchen. We started this in, in May, and we, uh, the first step into remodeling a, our kitchen is, is, is to, to demo. So we removed all our cabinets, we removed all, we had to take down a couple walls, uh, we're taking all the appliances and everything out of it. And so, it, uh, so uh, and that actually, the demo part of, a, of remodeling kitchen goes by very quickly in comparison to the rest of it. Uh, so this, our whole kitchen was totally gutted, nothing, it looked like a construction zone. We ripped the flooring out, it was ugly, it was horrible. And, uh, and as soon as I uh, walked back into the kitchen after like the, t- the full demo was, was totally done, I began to think to myself, was like, how am I ever going to dig myself out of this pit that I've just dug for myself? <laughs> Like, how am I ever going to put this back? And it's taken, I, you know, I, thought it would take me, I thought it would take me a month 
uh, to do this. It's, you know, it's still not done. Uh, we're, still, we're still working on it. It's, we're making progress. It actually looks like a kitchen now. You would know that it's a kitchen when you walked into this room. Uh, so uh, so, I, so I, I stand there in this middle of this room, sheetrock, you know, torn open, nothing, the flooring's horrible. Uh, and I'm like, how am I ever going to get from here, this low, horrible point of a, demol a demolished kitchen to... Uh, to where Monica and I want this kitchen to be, a beautiful, functioning, you know, new, new layout kitchen. Like, how am I going to get from point A to point B? How am I going to get myself out of this pit that I've dug myself in? And the first, uh, first time that my two-year-old son, he walks, walks into this room and saw what I did to our kitchen, he's like, he started breaking down crying because daddy broke the kitchen. That's what he said, okay? So, um, and so how am I going to get to this point where I don't make my two-year-old son cry every time he walks home? Right? Okay. And so, uh, and uh, what I've been learning about myself and about following Jesus as I've been uh, as I've been remodeling this kitchen is that following Jesus is a lot like remodeling a kitchen. It's a lot like being at the place where we're asking ourselves, "How am I supposed to? Uh, how am I supposed to get myself out of the pit of sin?" that I've dug myself into. How do I get from point A to point B? Sin can often feel like growing in Jesus, growing in the, the process of the big theology word is sanctification. That just means sanctus, to, to, like to be made holy. The process of becoming holy like Jesus was holy. Like that can feel like an impossible uh, puzzle uh, for, us to, uh, for, for us to solve. Oh, this thing is not in here. I've been clicking buttons, I promise, but... Um, uh, sin can feel like an impossible puzzle for us to solve. And, and like it's an impossible journey that we have no idea how to get from point A to point B. Anybody else ever been there with their sin before? Like I, I do that all the time. How do I get from point A to point B? How do I solve this impossible puzzle? How do I become more like Jesus? How does sanctification happen? How does God take a sinful, stubborn, rebellious person like me locked in a perpetual cycle of destructive self-worship and make a holy, beautiful, set-apart, spotless bride? Maybe you've wrestled with this question personally. Like, how, you struggle with lust. How do, I, how do I stop struggling with lust? You struggle with anger. How am I ever going to become a non-angry person? How am I ever going to stop lying or stop gossiping? How do I get from point A to point B? How do I put that off? That's, what, that's the way the Apostle Paul would put it, to put off sin. How do we do that? And really this question, this is one of the questions that, that God helps Zephaniah ask as he looks around, and looks around in ancient Judah. He looks around and he sees his unfaithful nation who have been spiraling deeper and deeper into a toilet bowl of sin and destruction and consequences over the past thousand years. Right? How would God, Zephaniah's question is, how would God lead his people out from the pit of sin and suffering that they had dug themselves into? And this morning, we're going to answer that question. We're going to answer that, that question for Zephaniah. We're going to answer that question for ourselves. And we're going to do that by firstly looking at a wrong, one wrong answer that we often pose to that, that question. How do, we, how, do we, how do we fight sin? We, we're going to look at one wrong answer, then we're going to look at the right answer, and then we're going to look at the, the result of that, the result of, of the right answer, okay? So, so, the wrong answer. What is the wrong answer? Go to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 6. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 6. And we'll read the first two, we'll read the first, first two verses uh, for us today. So, 
uh, Zephaniah writes, I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. The cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. Okay, this is cheery again for us this morning. Then this is God saying, God said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, God did all this hoping that they, would, that they would certainly finally fear him and accept correction. However, what was the actual result? They became more corrupt in all their actions. They became, or uh, that literally, it's, they rose up early. The, one translator puts it like, they were all the more eager. After all that God had tried to teach them, they were actually all the more eager to keep on, to keep on sinning. So, and here's, here's how I want to phrase this wrong answer here, that, uh, that, that, that we see here uh, um, Here's how I want to phrase that, phrase that for our modern day uh, answer to this question. So, here's the wrong answer. That God initiates, and then we do all the rest. How do we fight sin? Well, God initiates, and then we do all the rest. That's the wrong answer. So, let me be clear. That's the wrong answer uh, uh, that, that, we, that we see in this passage. So, what's happening here in Zephaniah chapter 3? God sees his people at the bottom of the si- of pit of sin that they've dug themselves, and then he takes the initiative. He, he, he uses the other nations. This is what we looked at last week when when we describe the judgment against the Philistines and Ammon and Assyria, he uses, uh, he's, he's continuing on that same thought in verse 6. He's, he's saying, these were all to display my wrath, my just wrath against Judah's neighbors. And maybe God says, uh, it's as if God were asking, like maybe that will show them, right? Maybe that, he says, certainly, certainly they will accept correction. But they didn't. They couldn't or wouldn't take the hint. Israel watched all the surrounding nations fall under the wrath of God, but they couldn't or wouldn't take the hint. Now, that's something that I'm, uh, another illustration about my, my two-year-old and four-year-old son, that's something that we're trying to teach, teach them, is the importance of being able to read another person's facial expressions and take a hint. Like, hey, I, they don't want to wrestle right now, so don't, wrestle, don't try to wrestle them. Like, take, take, the, take a hint, okay? Uh, Judah here is being a lot like a two-year, two-year-old or a four-year-old. Like, they're, they're unable to read another person's facial expressions and take the hint of what God is trying to teach them. God has prompted them. He's taking the initiative. He's showing them, uh, this is the consequences of your actions. But they're unable to take the hint. They're unable to read the room and read, read somebody's uh, facial expressions. It wasn't enough. Just God, God merely taking the initiative, God prompting them toward repentance wasn't enough. And, and they'd had a thousand years of history as a nation to turn from their sin over and over and over again. Zephaniah is not the first guy to come along and say, turn from your sin. <clears throat> their, their best efforts, they weren't enough. And the same is true for us today. We ask the question, how do I grow in holiness? How do I become more like Jesus? And often we answer the question, well, God starts the process and then we finish it, right? God takes the initiative for our growth and then I respond with my, my best efforts and I, I, I have to do, do all the, the rest, right? But if that's the answer that we give, then we're going to be in the same boat as, as, as the people of Israel and Zephaniah, right? That's the wrong answer. Instead, the humbling, freeing answer of the gospel is this, that just like Judah, we are unable, despite our best efforts and even God's promptings, to save ourselves from sin and its consequences. Now, sadly, so many of us find it impossible to be content with this reality. We want to believe uh, there's something that I can do to change ourselves. Most of us are, are quick to probably to admit that we need a little bit of help. Like we all need a little bit of grace, a little bit of uh, a, hand, a hand up from God's grace. That's why we say, that's why Jesus died on the cross to make it, to make it, uh, uh, to make it possible for us 
uh, to, to, be, uh, to, to be like him. God took the initiative and then we respond, we've got to finish the process. So there's a certain amount of control that, and security that comes with believing that I've got the answer, that somewhere deep down I've got the answer for my sin problem. But the Old Testament is really just one long story. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's one long, gigantic object lesson that's, that builds on itself as it goes, like a snowball building as it rolls down a hill. And this giant snowball over and over and over again with every, at every corner, with every story, with every major figure, it's meant to have an accumulative effect on us to make it painfully, unavoidably obvious that just like God's ancient people, just like Israel, just like Judah, we are unable, despite our best efforts, and even God's promptings, God's merely taking the initiative, to save ourselves from sin and its consequences. And it's in the prop, it's in Zephaniah, at the end of the story of the Old Testament, that this snowball reaches its greatest size, because they're about to experience the greatest consequences for their sin. So, the question is, okay, if that's not the right answer, if the, if the wrong answer is God, God starts us off and then we finish the process, if God taking the initiative isn't enough, if our best efforts can't save us, then should we even try? Like, maybe you're asking that question. Like, should we even try? Should we just throw our hands up in the air and, and say, well, shoot, if God wants to change me, if God wants me make, to make me more like Jesus, like, uh, then there's nothing I can do about it. Should I just be totally passive? Should I just not put forth any effort? How does God change and grow his people? How does he make us more holy? So that's the wrong answer. Here's the right answer. Here's the, here's the right answer that we're going to see in the next verse. God himself will go to whatever lengths necessary to refine his people. God himself will go to whatever lengths necessary to refine his people. That's what we see in Zephaniah chapter 3. If you think about it, really, that's the entire story of the entire Bible. Uh, from, from start to finish, it's God refining and making a people for himself. So let's, let's go to Zephaniah 3. Ver, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Uh, of Zephaniah chapter 3. He says, Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until I rise up for plunder. So he says, wait for me. It's not, it's not up to you. I'm about to take dramatic action. So just wait and watch and see what I'm going to do. He says, For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them and all my burning anger. For the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. In other words... His people weren't able to take the hint. As he goes around this, this, the, the tour of all the other nations that we saw last week, his people weren't able to take a hint about the reality of their sin and his coming, coming wrath. So, what would God do? God would flip all the political power structures of the ancient world on their heads to restore his people. He's going to gather the nations, assemble the kingdom, and he's going to pour out all his, his indignation, his burning anger, and, his whole, and the whole earth will be consumed by the, by the fire of his jealousy. And over the next couple hundred years after Zephaniah is, is, uh, is prophesying, God is going to be true to his word. Empire after empire would rise. Go back and read the history books. There was like an incredible amount of tumult and chaos. Empire rising, then decimated by another kingdom. The, the, the Babylonians, then the, the, then the Assyrians, then the Persians. Just empire after empire mass devastation, mass death, mass chaos. As the it's as if God was turning the world upside down. And all of it we see in, in, from the Bible, his whole purpose of this was to lead, to, to judge Israel, to lead them into exile and then restore them back to himself uh, after the exile. Okay? And that's what, that's what we read about uh, in the rest of, in the story of Scripture after, after Zephaniah. 
Okay? So that's on one level, this is what God is doing. He's, he's overturning, he's going to overturn the entire ancient world. But remember we said that, that prophecy is a lot like looking at a mountain range uh, at a distance. Like all the peaks of the mountain look like they're on the same 2D plane to us. But in reality, uh, what Zephaniah is seeing is there's like dozens of miles of distance between each of the peaks. So Zephaniah sees this smaller peak here and, uh, and he, he sees it as the destruction and the chaos of the, in the ancient world. But there's an even greater, taller, higher peak in the distance, further back in the distance, that, that, uh, that Zephaniah is talking about. And that is the, the great day of the Lord, we call it. The great day of the Lord when Jesus returns at the end of the age and, and, and judges the world. And, 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 and judges, the, judges the world and then renews the world, bring, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, uh, so the whole, so, uh, so, um, so in part, uh, Zephaniah's words come true here back in Israel's day, but in their fullest, most ultimate sense, this is, this is what will happen when Jesus returns. The whole world will be overturned. The earth will fade away and all of God's enemies uh, will know his wrath. These are the, and, and the whole point of all this is that these are the drastic, extreme measures that God would go to in order to make his people holy, in order to refine them and to purify them. And I want to pause here because for a second, like, we might be asking, like, is it worth it? Like, is all this wrath and judgment and anger, like, is that good? Is it even fair for God to, God to do this? Uh, and... Uh, uh, um, now, how does that anger square with the other things that we know true, to be true of God, his mercy and his compassion and his love? How do these things go together? And there's three, three answers. That are, that are, uh, there's three answers to this question. Is God's wrath here fair and is it good? Is it, is it, worth, is it worth all this wrath to, to, to save his people? And the first answer is, that, is this, that God's wrath is poured out against true human evil. And it's helpful to realize that, that these nations and that, 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 that people and, and God's enemies who have been stubbornly refusing his reign, uh, they're not neutral. They're not innocent bystanders. None of us are innocent or neutral or innocent bystanders. Whatever morally relative standard that we put on people, who, uh, these people that we read about in the Bible or the people that God will judge at the, on the last day, like, they're, not, they're, not, they're not innocent. They, they're actually powerful oppressors who hurt innocent people terribly. Right? So in Zephaniah's day, child sacrifice was a common practice in pagan Canaanite religion. They'd been, God's, the enemies of God's people had been raiding towns and fields of God's people for centuries. They were known for committing gruesomely destructive atrocities against their victims. So God here is dealing with a category of human existence that we don't even want to admit exists. That there is true undeniable, unexplainable human evil in the world. Okay, so these are not neutral parties, okay? And, and the Bible does not uh, de deny or downplay our capacity for sin. But then secondly, that leads us to the second point, that God's wrath is the only, the, the wrath of a holy, just, compassionate God is the only satisfying form of justice for the oppressed. Like, we, we all want justice for the oppressed. We all, we all want evil to be dealt with. We all want uh, 
uh, we all want the, 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 the weak and the vulnerable and the innocent to be vindicated and be treated fairly. Uh, the justice in the ultimate sense from the ultimate holy creating God is like what we were all designed to long for and to know. So uh, Jim Harden in our preaching team a couple weeks ago, he said it this way, like this is the God that we all want. At the end of the day, this is the justice that we all want. And so, and it's the only, so, so, God's, uh, so uh, God's wrath is the only satisfying form of justice for the oppressed. But then finally, and the point that connects us back to Zephaniah 3 is that God's wrath is always redemptive, or it's always followed by restoration. So what I mean here is that God's wrath is real, it's, it's horrifying, it's eternal, but God's wrath is never an end in itself. So he displays his wrath always with an aim toward good and redemptive purposes. And what I mean by that is not that, well, everybody that experiences God's wrath, well, don't worry about it because one day they'll all, be, they'll all be saved or they'll all like, avoid God's wrath. What I, what I instead mean is that God's, on the other side of God's wrath is always a greater good. Wrath is always, always gives way to restoration. So whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem or the fall of Babylon, or the, or the judgment day when Christ returns. God's wrath is, is poured out in those ways, in, in a way that refines, in a way that purifies, in a way that cleanses and gives way to something beautiful. That's the pattern over and over and over again in Scripture. So God's wrath is never an, an, means, uh, an end of itself. It's always a means to a greater good. And ultimately, in the great day of the Lord, when Christ returns, God's wrath will give way to the beautiful, perfect new heavens and new earth. God's wrath is purifying, okay? So, and this redemptive heart is exactly what we see in in Zephaniah. Because ultimately, the rise and fall of these political powers, of of nations and empires falling, and God's God's just wrath being poured out on all this uh, wickedness in humanity, ultimately, like, that wasn't enough to save God and to change God's people's heart either. Even after judgment and being restored, even after the exile and then waiting 70 years and then coming back together, God's people were still unfaithful to him. Like you read the end of Ezra and the end of Nehemiah, like it doesn't go well in in some of the later prophets. Like that's not even enough to, to teach them and to change them. And so instead, God would go on to turn not just empires on their heads, but God would go on to turn the, the very foundations of the cosmos on its head. His wrath would be poured out not on evil emperors, but on the only faithful king. In the cross, on the, 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 another great day of the Lord, the world was turned up or upside down. All his indignation, all his burning anger, all his fiery jealousy that we read about in verse 8, like we can, re- we can see that poured out onto Jesus. When we look at the cross, we see the fulfillment of, verse, of, of God's wrath here in, in, in verse 8. The one, uh, the one righteous Messiah, the one through whom the, the universe was made and it hangs together, he was crushed and the earth shook, the curtain was torn, the world went dark, and all of the human history was changed and, and forever, and the course of human history was turned forever. He overhauled not just one life or one nation or one empire, but the creator of the world himself was undone. And God, and this, and all of this is to show us that God will go to any lengths to refine and redeem and restore his people. Even, he did not even spare his own son. Okay? 
So that's the right answer. The wrong answer, God starts the process and then we finish it. We do the rest. The right answer, God himself will do whatever it takes to refine his people, refine you, refine all those who are in, in, in Jesus. Okay, so what's the result of this? What's the result of this? The result is that God's refining faithfulness will change us. That's a promise in Scripture. God's refining faithfulness will change us. All right, so what does that mean? What, how, how, do, how do we apply this specifically? How do we see that for you and me? All right, well, God is using the same tool today that he used back then to refine and to grow, grow his people. Uh, how, do we, how does God grow and change his people? How do we become more like Jesus? By following the same path that Jesus did. And that is that God uses discipline and God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. Now, um, so just as God used an outpouring of just discipline and wrath against his ancient people, God uses discipline to shape and form his people today. Now, I want to be very clear, because there's, there's nuance here that can be easily misunderstood, but I want to be really clear that we've just said all of God's, all of God's wrath has, and anger has been poured out onto Jesus himself, the one who didn't deserve it. And that, what that means is, what the gospel teaches us is, what that means is that there is not, no longer an ounce of anger or wrath that God holds against his children. So if you're in Christ, like there is not an ounce, not even a, a hint of anger, wrath, disappointment, disapproval that God holds for you because of what Jesus did in your place. That's all been poured out on Jesus. Now, it's easy, it's easy for us to think, to think that, that, that the pain that we feel, the suffering that we might go through, whether it be a loss of a loved one or, an, or a diagnosis or, or just the day-to-day anxiety of dealing with sin or living in a fallen world, it's easy to, to feel like God's, that suffering in, uh, that we face in this life, that, that pain that we feel in this life, is, is in some way God punishing us for past sin. God getting even with us, or God bringing back the, what we, you know, the sins of our past uh, and causing us, uh, causing us to, to experience the consequences that, for that today. But all of God, but to, but to believe that and to, to buy into that is, is to misunderstand the gospel itself. All of God's punishment for your sin has already been satisfied in Jesus. And yet at the same time, so all of God's wrath and anger and punishment has been satisfied in Jesus' death in your place. And yet at the same time, the Bible, the New Testament, is, is very clear that God uses discipline and suffering to shape us. Even Jesus, Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience. He learned the fullest extent of what it means to obey and, and to follow faithfully after God through suffering. Hebrews 5 tells us that. So, it's, so even Jesus, uh, the innocent one, had to learn obedience through what he suffered. So let's go to one of, the, one of the biggest passages that helps us wrestle with this is Hebrews chapter 12. If you have a copy of scripture, you can turn there with me. I'll have the words on my screen. We're going to spend just a few minutes in Hebrews chapter 12. Because God, God disciplines now. God disciplines us now, not with anger, like He did, like He does, uh, like He did uh, uh, toward God, toward uh, those outside of His people back then, but with fatherly compassion. With fatherly compassion. Let's read uh, Hebrews chapter twelve. We're going to start in verse five and go through all the way all the way through eleven. Listen to God's heart uh, for His for you and uh, 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 for you and for His children. Okay, so Hebrews chapter twelve, verse five. He says, "My son." 
Do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and punishes every son He receives. Uh, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them then. We respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit, so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you and I want to grow, if you, if you and I uh, want to become more like Jesus, then we must know, according to Hebrews 12, according to the whole arc of Scripture, then we must know His discipline. Right? Uh, so the answer to that question, like, how do, how do I grow? How do I become more like Jesus? How do I grow in holiness? The answer is the gracious, compassionate, yet firm, fatherly hand of God's discipline. There's other things. There's other ways you can answer. But this is, I, I don't know any other way that we grow, that we, that, we, that, we, that we become more like Jesus, more fully, more effectively than through the process of discipline. And do you see how this totally reframes whatever pain that you're feeling, pain that I don't even know or can't even express for you? Do you you see how it reframes how we view the pain that we know in this life? It's not God getting even with us. It's not God being absent or out of control. God's firm but gracious hand. As you deal with loss, as we deal with broken relationships, as we deal with, with, with the consequences for our sin, as we deal with the, the, the anxiety and the stresses of, of, of life in a fallen world, God's fatherly gracious hand is dealing with us as legitimate adopted sons and daughters with all the rights and the privileges that come with being bought into his family. Because, you see what it says? Like, um, if, if, we, if we go without discipline, we are illegitimate children and not sons. But the Lord disciplines those he loves. Okay, so, uh, uh, so that's the answer to the question. How, how do we grow in, in holiness? How do we become more like Jesus? Through the gracious fatherly discipline of God. Now, there's three ways specifically that, um, that Zephaniah sees this growth, sees this holiness, sees this refining working out in in the life of, of, of God's people, okay? We're going to look, and we're going to look at each, each three of those. So firstly, in verse 9, look at verse 9 of Zephaniah chapter 3, look at verse 9, we're, what we see is that God is refining our worship. So God wants to refine, God wants to use discipline and use his fatherly hand to refine our worship by restoring unity. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, then, For then I will restore pure speech to the people, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that is, to the greatest extents of the world, like as, as far as the people of Israel could ever imagine the world being, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. So some incredible things are going on here. Remember, verse 8 was total universal judgment. 
But then now he turns on a dime and he says, and that judgment, as we said, gives way to restoration and redemption and refinement. God's wrath is always working for redemption. And what's going on here is actually a reversal of the Tower of Babel. So he's saying, remember all the way back in Genesis 11, our forefathers banded together to make a name for themselves. They came together with a single purpose. Uh, same words here uh, in Zephaniah 3. They came together with a single purpose in defiance of God. And now he's saying, I'm going to totally reverse that, reverse the effects of, of the curse and sin, and I'm going to bring you together in single purpose to worship, to restore pure speech. This is what God is, is after. No longer will, will, we, uh, will we worship idols and false gods. No longer will we be in conflict and competition with, with one another. And so here's our application as we look at, as we look at this. Like, are you on board with God's vision for unified, pure worship. And I ask that, like, obviously, nobody's going to be like, if you follow Jesus, nobody's going to be like, no, I, I don't want God to be worshipped, you know? Uh, but, like, the question is, like, do you long to be with God's people, worshipping the king with brothers and sisters who were once at odds with, the, with each other? Like, too many of us are content, really, to live kind of independent, self-pleasing, self-purposed lives like, under the curse of Babel, spread out and scattered, doing our own thing, chasing after our own purposes. But God is reversing all that in Jesus, and his vision is to refine us, to create us into a people who are one and together. So let's value what Jesus values, okay? So that's, that's the first thing. Second thing, God is removing our shame by removing our pride, and that's, that's a paradox uh, intentionally. So look, look at verse, verse 11, because we see this paradox played out. God is removing our shame by re- removing our pride. Verse 11, on that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. So here's what God is refine, refining discipline is doing in his people's lives. He's taking, uh, he says, he's, he promises, I'm going to remove your shame. But how is he going to remove the shame? Second half of the verse, I'm going to remove your shame by removing from among you arrogant, jubilant, that's like not just happy people, but like arrogantly happy people, who will be, who, uh, you will never again be haughty. So the principle is this, humanity's pride had brought about their shame. And the only way to remove our shame, the only way to remove the shame of sin and its effects is to remove our pride. And that's because pride always leads us to shameful places. Your, our pride will always lead us to shameful places. So this is true for us in two ways. Firstly, like our pride leads us to treat others shamefully. Have you ever like, looked back, like treated somebody like, in a horrible way and looked back be out of arrogance and look back and just been completely embarrassed by the way you talk to somebody about, about how you made a person feel or, or, or whatever. Like, I, as I've gotten older, as I've looked back on the way I arrogantly treated girls or talked to girls or arrogantly treated other people, like peers and friends growing up, like, like I, I look back on that with incredible shame and embarrassment. Or have you ever, like, um, just totally self-righteously laid into somebody because of a mistake they've made? And then the whole time you were laying into this person, everybody around you was just feeling like, uh, this, is, this is the real, uh, real idiot, right? The person that's, that's, that's laying into the other person, right? Uh, that's what our pride, our arrogance, it leads us to shameful places, okay? But then secondly, our own, uh, our own, in, uh, our own internal sense of shame, our own insecurities, our own, uh, our own internal sense of shame, it's actually counterintuitively often fueled by a self-focused, self-obsessed pride. 
And, what, and, I, and I, if, you're, if you're someone here that struggles with, 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 uh, with a deep sense of shame, I want to I be gentle here, but, but I also think that this is very true, and it's very countercultural, but it's very true and important for us to wrestle with. Um, I was talking to a, a young girl, a teenager, a few weeks ago about, uh, we were talking about, we were doing a little talk on pride, and we were talking about the ways that she might struggle with pride, you know, in a small group. And she said, well, I could never be pr- struggle with pride because I hate myself. And so, uh, and on the one hand, like, instantly, my heart broke as, as I heard this teenage girl say, like, I hate, that she hates herself. Like, your heart breaks for that. But at the, at the same time, uh, I, um, I, as, the more I reflected after that moment, I thought, what a revealing statement about each one of our souls. Like, we can become so preoccupied with how others view us, uh, with... Um, so focused on what others think of us that we drown ourselves in shame whenever we feel like we don't measure up, whenever we feel like we're overlooked by others, whenever we feel disrespected. So this cycle of shame that we can live in begins with a prideful self-absorption and self-focus. So whether our pride leads us to treat others shamefully or our own sense of shame is is fueled by self-focus, like our pride produces shame. That was true, and we're really not that much different from the people of ancient Judah. But here's the, the truth of the gospel, of what God is doing to refine and to re, uh, refine you as his child. Like God is committed to removing your shame, to removing whether it's the sh- shameful ways you treat others or the shame that, you, that, that is wrongfully heaped on you. God is committed to removing that shame, and he will do so in his gracious fatherly hand by removing your pride. So, so lean into that. So press into what to Jesus' work in your life. And then, and then finally, God is making us into humble refuge seekers. Look at verse 12 and 13, last, verse, last two verses of this passage. I will leave a meek and a humble people among you. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The, the remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong uh, or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will lie in... They will pasture and lie down, and nothing will make them afraid. All the centuries of God's people seeking refuge in idols, of seeking refuge in themselves by making alliances with other nations, by telling lies, by, 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 by seeking refuge in their own armies or in all the wrong places, all of their, the wrong ways that God's, uh, God's people have sought refuge, it's going to finally come to an end. And God's form of refuge will be way better. Like, they will be a meek and a humble people. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. They will finally find the pasture and the lack of fear that they need. And, and through the cross, Jesus wants to take you on that journey as well. But, so where have you been seeking refuge in all the wrong places? In, in, the, in a false form of protection? What relationship, what substance, what, 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 uh, uh, where have you been seeking refuge and security? This is what God is committed to. He's committed to making you someone who finally finds the rest and the pasture and the refuge that you were designed to find in him. Uh, and that's, that's, that is what God is, God is working to. Notice all three of these things are, are promises. God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. God is committed to that. The question is for us, for you this morning is, are you going to join with God's purposes? Are you going to partner with God in the direction that he is heading? Are you, are you, or is the posture of your life against God and against the direction that he's, he's headed? 
God's invitation, his, his fatherly, gracious, compassionate invitation is join with me, press into the ways that I, want to, that I am accomplishing my purposes through you. And you will live. You will live. Let me pray for us. To close. Father, um, uh, we praise you because you are working deeply and powerfully. We see that you have worked uh, throughout uh, the strands and, and the scope of all of human history uh, to refine and to redeem a people. So would you teach us, or teach us where we've been, where we've been avoiding, ignoring, uh, trying to escape your fatherly discipline in our lives. And teach us uh, where we need to press in. Teach us where, we're, where we've been downplaying uh, your call to worship you, to, to restore renewed worship. Where have, teach us to, to, to see where our pride has been leading us to shameful places. Teach us to see where, we've, uh, where, where we have been seeking refuge in all the wrong places so that we can find the life that your discipline would lead us to. By looking to the cross, the one who is judged, the one who bore all the consequences and the weight of all our sin onto himself, though he didn't deserve it. Teach us to rest in this gospel as we sing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.